Arms control experts warn Vladimir Putin's suspension of a key nuclear treaty is part of a troubling global rise in nuclear weapons. It's Wednesday, February 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we hear from the group known as the White Helmets on relief efforts in Syria after this month's devastating earthquake. Also, an imported wasp may be helping the fight against a parasite threatening New England's ash trees. The problem with biocontrol is it's going to be 10 or 15 years later when we see how much of a resurgence the ash manages. And this hour, a conversation with Dee Dee Gardner, the only woman to win two Best Picture awards. Now she's up for a third. I've kind of always had a gut instinct about it. I don't see any point in telling stories that have already been told. I'm really interested in what other people have to say. Sun this morning, clouds this afternoon, a wintry mix this evening, high in the 40s. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. President Biden is spending his last day in Poland focused on the war in Ukraine. He'll talk with NATO officials and meet the leaders of the Bucharest Nine. The BBC's Sarah Smith reports the group focuses on regional defense and aid to Ukraine. The leaders of nine Eastern European countries with direct experience of living under authoritarian communist rule will be eager to learn from President Biden that America is committed to defending their security over the long term. They will have been reassured to hear him say in his Warsaw speech last night that the war in Ukraine is a fight for freedom and democracy, a battle that Russia cannot be allowed to win. The BBC's Sarah Smith reporting. There's a severe winter storm hitting the northern plains. Some schools in the Dakotas, Minnesota and Wisconsin are closed today. The National Weather Service says parts of Minnesota could get two feet of snow. Forecasters are telling people to stay home if they can. The Biden administration is proposing tougher restrictions on asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. NPR's Joel Rose reports the proposal is likely to be challenged in court. The proposed rule would make it harder for migrants to get asylum if they cross the border illegally after passing through Mexico or another country without seeking protection there first. Critics accuse the Biden administration of betraying its promise to restore asylum protections at the border. They say the proposal closely mirrors a Trump administration policy that would have blocked nearly all migrants from seeking asylum at the border. But the Biden administration disputes that. Officials argue this rule is different from Trump's version because it's not intended to cut off asylum completely and includes exceptions for vulnerable migrants. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. In Wisconsin, one liberal and one conservative candidate have each made it through a state Supreme Court primary election. They'll face off in the general election in April. The outcome could affect the state's current ban on almost all abortions. From member station WUWM, Chuck Quirmbach has more. Milwaukee County Judge Janet Protasewicz, a liberal who says she supports abortion rights, came in first in Tuesday's contest. She told supporters she plans no time off before the general election. And the reason we're not even taking a day off is because everything we care about is going to be determined by who wins this election. Protasewicz's opponent will be former State Justice Daniel Kelly, He's been endorsed by anti-abortion rights groups that are fighting a lawsuit seeking to overturn Wisconsin's abortion ban that took effect last summer. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Quirmbach in Milwaukee. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro says he has made a criminal referral of railroad Norfolk Southern over the toxic train derailment that happened earlier this month. This occurred in nearby Ohio. Shapiro says the railroad provided inaccurate information and modeling data about the accident. You're listening to NPR News.
Fox News evening host Tucker Carlson says he's been given access to thousands of hours of videotape from the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. He says House Speaker Kevin McCarthy granted the access. McCarthy has not commented. Carlson has previously minimized the violence that occurred during the riot. He says he's now trying to see if the videos contradict what he has heard about the attack. The Lviv National Philharmonic Orchestra of Ukraine performed last night in Virginia. From member station WVTF, Roxy Todd reports the orchestra is on a two-month tour of the United States. Every musician in the Lviv Orchestra knows someone who's been killed or wounded in the war, says conductor Theodore Kuchar. I know that most of them are very distracted with what's going on at home, whether it's their five-year-old daughter, whether it's handicapped elderly parents. I would go as far as to say that, that there's even a sense of guilt. Since January, the orchestra has been traveling throughout the United States on a 40-concert tour which was planned before the Russian invasion. They will perform several more times over the next two weeks. Then they'll head back to Ukraine, where sometimes there's limited electricity and they have to perform in the cold. For NPR News, I'm Roxy Todd in Radford, Virginia. WNBA star Brittany Griner has re-signed with her old team, the Phoenix Mercury. She had been a free agent. Griner had also been held in a Russian prison for most of last year. She was released last December in a prisoner exchange. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. People in the Boston area are reflecting on the legacy of former President Jimmy Carter. The 98-year-old entered hospice care last week. After life in the White House, Carter and his wife Rosalind founded Habitat for Humanity. That group helps build homes across the world. Jim Castaris is the president and CEO of Habitat for Humanity of Greater Boston. He leaves a tremendous legacy of service and uh, really working to make the world a better place. You know, a lot of our staff are too young to remember Jimmy Carter as president. Uh, They really only know him as uh, the face of Habitat for Humanity. Carter also won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2002. Governor Maura Healey is joining a new coalition of governors focused on protecting and expanding abortion access in their states. The so-called Reproductive Freedom Alliance is made up of 20 Democratic governors. It includes the leaders of Maine, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. Healey says the effort isn't just about abortion access. She says the group will work to improve reproductive health care as a whole. Boston Medical Center plans to close a shelter and clinic at a hotel near the area of Mass Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. The programs at the Roundhouse Hotel provide housing, stabilization services, and medical treatment for addiction. BMC leaders tell the Boston Herald the closure is due to a lack of long-term funding. The clinic is expected to close in just over a month. The shelter will remain open through June. Roxbury Community College is unveiling a photo exhibit tomorrow as part of its 50th anniversary celebration. It'll feature portraits of 50 pioneers who helped shape the college. Photographer Lou Jones took more than half of the portraits. He says he wanted to capture each pioneer's personality. The theory is to last for a lot of years to tell the story on immediately. So somebody turns the corner, there's a photograph, they not only see the person, But there's a story being told in the photograph 
that illuminates what this person is, does, or has been. After tomorrow's event at the college, the portrait exhibit will go on tour around the state before returning to campus permanently. It's 7.08. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. A sunny start this morning, but clouds move in by the afternoon. It'll be in the mid-40s. A wintry mix moves in this evening. Less than an inch of snow is expected in the higher elevations around Worcester and Fitchburg. No accumulation anywhere else. It'll drop down to the 30s. Some rain and sleet tomorrow. It'll be in the mid-30s. After that, it should stay dry through the weekend. It's 39 degrees in Boston at 7.08. WBUR supporters include BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. An unhappy kid on the playground may threaten to take his ball and go home. But what happens when a world leader threatens to take his nuclear football and go home? Russia's President Vladimir Putin blames the U.S. for his invading army's trouble in Ukraine. And now he says Russia is suspending its participation in a nuclear arms control deal with the U.S. It's a decade-old agreement called the New START Treaty. Putin spoke in Moscow yesterday, and with its usual speed, Russia's legislature applied the rubber stamp today. So how much should we worry about the unraveling of a nuclear deal? NPR science and security correspondent Jeff Brumfield is following the story. Jeff, good morning. Good morning. What does this agreement do? It caps the number of weapons on bombers, missiles, and submarines to around 1,500. Now, each side is still allowed to keep a number of weapons in storage, but this is sort of the limit that can be deployed. It also allows for inspections of nuclear bases and for a lot of information exchange between the U.S. and Russia about nuclear weapons. Russia's announcement means there won't be any more inspections for the foreseeable future and the data likely won't be shared. But Russia did say it was committed to keeping its nuclear weapons at 1,500 deployed weapons, at least for now. They're going to to stay in notional compliance, or at least so they say, just not actually going to allow the inspections or anything else. Is that at least a little bit reassuring? Kind of, but there's a bigger picture, which is several other treaties have actually already collapsed in recent years. So in 2019, the U.S. withdrew from a treaty governing certain kinds of nuclear missiles. About a year and a half later, the U.S. and Russia both withdrew from another treaty related to nuclear weapons. Olga Olikar is with the nonprofit International Crisis Group, and she says the New START treaty is really all that's left. I mean, this was the last big treaty. And if it's gone, then the entire nuclear arms control infrastructure is gone. Which, I guess, in theory, means that one side or the other could take its thousands of other nuclear warheads out of the closet or the cave or wherever they've got them and deploy them. Is this going to mean a Cold War arms race? Well, not yet. Right now, as I said, we're, we're at about 1,500 warheads. And to give you a sense of how bad things were during the Cold War, at various points, each side had around 30,000 weapons. I spoke to arms control expert Lynn Rustin at the Nuclear Threat Initiative. She says that Russia doesn't want to go back there. They have historically always wanted to constrain U.S. strategic weapons because they don't want to be in an arms race either. 
But she adds the way you avoid an arbitrary is treaties. And those treaties do seem to be falling apart. Right now, we're just seeing a total breakdown with no prospect of recovery anytime soon. With the war in Ukraine grinding on, you know, I mean, the U.S. and Russian relations are at an all-time low. And Russian and other experts I spoke to think this suspension could be the beginning of the end. Uh, Jeff, you're the science and security correspondent. I don't feel secure when you say things like beginning of the end. What do you mean? I mean, that you know, we could return to a Cold War-like situation, except it would be a lot more complicated because now we have countries like North Korea, which have nuclear weapons, and China is undergoing a dramatic expansion of its nuclear capabilities. So getting new treaties is going to be even harder. NPR's Jeff Brumfield, thanks for the insights. Thank you, Steve. We have a few more insights now from Sarah Bidgood, who is with the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies, which means a moment like this is her business. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Can you educate me on how bad things could quickly get if things were to go south? We heard from Jeff that each side has 1,500 nuclear weapons deployed and ready to go or close to being deployed and ready to go. How many others do they have back on the shelf somewhere? Oh, it's a great question, Steve. I mean, I think things are really not looking great right now. Um, from my perspective, as you heard at the top, this is really the last arms control treaty in place between the United States and Russia, and arms control plays a crucial role in preventing uh, the kinds of arms racing that you heard uh, Jeff talk about in his intro. So this is you know, something that we should definitely be worried about, and it's something to which both sides should be closely attentive. But do I, what, what I want to know is, do, does each side still have, as was the case during the Cold War, thousands of additional weapons lying around somewhere that they could bring out of storage? Yes, that's definitely something that could happen. Um, and when you hear an analyst say, well, uh, Russia doesn't actually want that, um, it makes me think perhaps they're just taking a symbolic step of suspending their participation, but they're not going to really change anything. Um, are you reassured? Um, not particularly, because the way in which Russia has framed its suspension of participation in the New START Treaty is as a political decision. They're really making it clear that this is a decision that's based on sort of the changing political environment with the United States against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine. And so, yes, while in principle, I've heard some analysts point out that this is a potentially reversible decision. It's not withdrawal, it's suspension. Um, the conditions under which I think Russia would be inclined to rejoin participation um, are, are not ones that I think the U.S. would sort of be interested in. They're things like showing political will and a conscientious effort towards general de-escalation. Um, to me, it sounds like Russia is essentially interested in holding the treaty hostage to a change in the U.S. position with respect to the war in Ukraine um, which is leaving me feeling quite pessimistic. Wait a minute. When you say hold the treaty hostage, I imagine Putin's saying, lovely little planet you got there. It'd be a shame if anything happened to it. Is that what's going on here? Well, I think, I mean, I think it's more the case that Russia is making it clear that they're not necessarily willing to wall things like arms control off from the broader political environment and the broader ups and downs in the U.S.-Russian relationship, which really represents, you know, a change from the Cold War. In the Cold War, we often saw moments where the U.S. and Russian or the U.S. and Soviet relationship was quite bad, but still arms control and nonproliferation cooperation were able to move forward. Um, in the current environment, what I'm hearing from 
the Kremlin and what we hear coming from Putin is that that's no longer really the case. These two things are now linked. I'm thinking about the way that U.S. military officials, when they think about Russia, they like to communicate. They want predictability. They want open channels of communication. They want to know what each other is doing to avoid misunderstandings. And with that in mind, I took note when Jeff told us a moment ago that Russia is ending inspections of military bases. Mm -hmm. How big a deal is it that each side would then have less vis visibility into what the other side might or might not be doing? Yeah, that's a great point, Steve. I think you've hit the nail on the head. So when on-site inspections go away, which, you know, to be honest, those were already, um, Russia had already prohibited those before Putin made his announcement on Tuesday that they were suspending participation. Um, but when you don't have on-site inspections, you do lose this visibility, just as you said, into sort of what is happening on the other side with respect to the other side's strategic arsenal. Um, and I think it's important to note here that that does a couple of things. I mean, for one thing, it can on the U.S. side, decrease confidence about what Russia is doing. They claim they're going to comply with the treaty limits, even though they're suspending their participation in the treaty itself. But how do we actually know that's happening? We don't have on-site inspections and we don't have data exchanges. I don't want to terrify I think everybody. I, I, oh, no, go on, go on, finish your point. Um, the other thing I was going to say is that in addition, you know, those opportunities to interact with your counterparts on the other side also provide important channels for you know, confidence building for regular communication that isn't necessarily happening in today's environment. So you're losing a couple of different things there when the on-site inspections go away. Does the loss of information force American decision makers in some potential future crisis, force them to make decisions differently because they can't be sure what the other side might be doing? Um, I think the answer to that would be, you know, not necessarily so much in a crisis per se, but I would say um, with respect to making decisions about, you know, military buildups and things like that, arms, arms racing um, in an environment where you're not really clear on what the other side is doing, that can lead you to make decisions where you just want to hedge all of your bets because you're not really clear on, on no, what's happening. By spending with a your lot adversary. of money. And that happened during the Cold for example. War for sure. Sarah Bidgood, <laughs> exactly. thanks so much. Thank you. She's with the Center for Nonproliferation Studies. More than 40 million people are in the cross-country path of a monster snowstorm. Snow is expected in many places, including New Brighton, Minnesota, where Mark Beiswinger owns a hardware store and says customers are bringing in snowblowers for repairs. They didn't do it two weeks ago when it was 45 degrees out. They got to wait till it's snowing. And then they'll, you know, that's the problem with Minnesotans. They wait until the last minute. <laughs> Forecasters are calling the storm the biggest in a generation, which for Minnesota is saying something. Chris Reese is a meteorologist with KSTP. This is Minnesota. We know how to do snow and we do it very well. So when you tell someone, hey, we haven't had this kind of storm since the 80s. Well, suddenly that starts to up the ante a little bit. Mr. Reese is urging Minnesotans to stay home, and if you ignore that advice or you just can't follow that advice, move carefully. you got to go at your own pace. You know, there are always people who are going to zip past you going way too fast, and you think, oh, maybe I need to speed up too. No, you don't. Go at your own pace. Jason Hurst and his family run five hardware stores, and he's preparing for a road trip in the middle of the storm to get from store to store. I have a kit, which blankets, tow ropes, I have, you know, firearm. I bring my snow boots. I bring, <laughs> yeah, I just have this action packer, this tote, and I just have it full of stuff that might come in handy if I get stranded. He's going to be ready for whatever happens, and he says there is a good side 
to all this moisture? We desperately need the water in our mountains to fill our reservoirs and fill our aquifers and springs. I don't think people want to grumble too loud because it's, it's truly a blessing. That's how Allison Reynolds feels. She's in Tehachapi, California, which is under a winter storm warning and watching a forecast for up to two feet of snow. I'm planning on carrying my guitar downstairs, sitting in front of the fire and just playing and, and, you know, watching the snow come down. She's a musician who says the pandemic taught her how to stay busy indoors, a skill she can reuse now. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the head of the Wagner Group of Mercenaries fighting for Russia in Ukraine has accused top officials in Moscow of treason. It's 7.20. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. The Turkish city of Gaziantep is famous for its food, especially baklava. This dessert is the symbol of this city. But it was also at the center of the earthquake earlier this month. My friend here maybe carried out over 20 bodies out of the rubble. We visit a baklava bakery in the city that has started baking again on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Partly sunny and windy this morning, rain this afternoon in the low 40s. It's 39 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia. For 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. In Russia's war on Ukraine, the mercenary Wagner Group has taken center stage along with its founder, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Americans may remember Prigozhin as the mastermind behind Russian troll farms during the 2016 presidential elections. Russia's defense ministry knows him as their fiercest critic. Just yesterday, Prigozhin called them traitors. From his home city of St. Petersburg, NPR's Charles Maines has this profile of the man. In a gritty industrial district of St. Petersburg, a new glass office tower rises, the words Wagner Center emblazoned across its rooftop. It's a symbol of Wagner's growing business empire, 
And it turns out you can get a tour. It's a huge building. Our guide, Anastasia Vasilevskaya. It's 23 floors. The Wagner Center, still under construction, is conceived as office space to serve the state, she tells me. Mostly we are interested in uh, those who are patriotic, you know. There will be a free 24-hour media lab for patriotic bloggers to seed the internet. Also seed money for Russian tech startups with potential military applications. And on the upper floors, luxury boardrooms with a view. We will not have offices here, maybe one or two, just for our for big boss. Not the big, big boss. Can I ask about the big, big boss? No, I don't have any answers for that. But the big, big boss isn't exactly a secret. After years of operating in the shadows, Wagner's founder, 61-year-old Yevgeny Prigozhin, now very much wants to be seen. This is video of Prigozhin at a prison colony in September, personally recruiting Russian convicts to fight in Ukraine. Survive six months, promises Prigozhin, and you're a free man. God and Allah can take you out of here in a casket, he says. I can get you out of here alive. Or there's Prigozhin here, in the town of Solodar, in East Ukraine, this past January, where he says he's come to hand out medals to Wagner fighters after a hard-fought victory. They're probably the most experienced army in the entire world today, he says of Wagner, an army that after years of denials, Prigozhin now acknowledges as his own. It's a mercenary force that has been linked to covert Kremlin military operations in Syria, Africa, Ukraine and beyond. The question is, why go public now? Longtime observers say the answer lies in Prigozhin's pursuit of power and influence. Denis Korotkov is a Russian investigative journalist who broke several of the early stories on Wagner's activities. That was in 2014. Back then, Prigozhin was better known as Putin's chef, a nickname he earned after building a restaurant and catering empire favored by the Kremlin from humble beginnings as an ex-con operating a hot dog stand. But Korotkov discovered Prigozhin was also secretly recruiting Russians to fight along separatists in the Donbass, a private militia he named after the 19th century German composer. It was with permission straight from the top, argued Korotkov, part of a Kremlin off-the-books effort to hide Russian meddling in Ukraine. Fast forward to today, and Korotkov has fled Russia out of concerns for his safety, but he says Wagner, now an army of some 50,000 men, is central to efforts to salvage Russia's current military campaign, and Prigozhin knows it. The Russian army doesn't appear to have much incentive to fight. The people who enter Wagner are more motivated. For months, Prigozhin has publicly criticized the Russian military's top brass as incompetent and out of touch. He's also feuded with them over who deserve credit for battlefield victories when they come. This is Prigozhin claiming Wagner fighters were solely responsible for seizing territory near the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut earlier this month. Prigozhin presents Wagner ranks as the best of the best, better trained, equipped and paid than regular troops. Prigozhin has even produced slick action films that mythologize Wagner heroics and sacrifice, even if real life has proven more complicated. Victor Litovkin, a military analyst with the state-run TASS news agency, notes Wagner operates in a legal gray zone. Despite its now acknowledged role in the Kremlin war effort, Wagner, he says, is still formally an outlawed militia at home. If the government allows Wagner to work and doesn't get in their way, it means 
the government approves. It approves, but it bears no responsibility, because the men serving in Wagner aren't soldiers. The law doesn't apply to them. Like Russia's military, Wagner has faced and denied allegations of war crimes in Ukraine. Undisputed is the group's practice of extrajudicial killings of its own fighters suspected of disloyalty. In November, Wagner released video footage of the execution of one of its own members. Prigozhin has since embraced the executioner's tool, a sledgehammer, as a proud symbol of Wagner battlefield justice. All of this, the violence and the infighting with Russia's military, is happening on President Putin's watch. Whether because the Kremlin leader is allowing it or simply can't control it is a matter of debate. Either way, Prigozhin benefits from the ambiguity, says Alexander Prokopienko, an independent analyst focused on Russian government policymaking. We don't know for sure how Putin uh, think about Prigozhin. And Prigozhin knows that no one knows. That's his quasi-influence. Many say Prigozhin's brutality and bravado is a prelude for a push for personal power. Yet Prokopienko argues Prigozhin is still fundamentally reliant on his personal ties to the Russian leader, a patronage, she notes, that could disappear at any moment. When the war will end, and this war definitely will end someday, uh, he will become uh, a liability. For now, Prigozhin insists he's a simple patriot, focused on the mission at hand and telling it like it is. In a recent video interview with a pro-Kremlin military blogger, Prigozhin insisted he had zero political ambitions and hopes only to retreat with his mercenaries to a warm climate once the war is won. Yet Korotkov, the journalist, says Prigozhin's continued public role, perhaps even survival, given the powerful enemies he's made, depends on his army constantly proving itself on the battlefield, whatever the cost in lives. If Wagner doesn't make significant achievements in Ukraine, Prigozhin's star will of course fall, says Krotkov, and there will be plenty of people, he adds, who would be happy to participate in burying him. Charles Maines, NPR News, St. Petersburg. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, we learn about the White Helmets, a civilian group of volunteers being called heroes for the many people they've rescued in the wake of the earthquake in Syria. And Seattle has become the first American city to ban discrimination based on the Indian caste system. It's 730 Follow the news all day with WBUR. We're at 90.9 on the radio, WBUR.org online, and on the WBUR mobile app on your phone. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The latest NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll shows President Biden with his highest approval ratings in almost a year. NPR's Domenico Montanaro has more. There's been a reversal here in Biden's favor. Back in November, right before the midterms, we asked Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents whether they had a better chance of winning the presidency in 2024 with Biden or with someone else. 54% then said someone else. Now 50% say that their best shot is with Biden. Among registered voters polled 1,200 of the 1,300 surveyed last week, Biden's approval rating was 49 percent. 
Russia yesterday called on the U.N. Security Council to investigate explosions last September along the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipelines in the Baltic Sea. Moscow has strongly suggested the U.S. played a role in the underwater blast, having occurred not long after NATO summer exercises. U.S. Counselor for Political Affairs John Kelly rejected the charge. Let me state clearly and plainly. Accusations the United States was involved in this act of sabotage are completely false. The United States was not involved at all. Kelly charged that Russia is trying to distract world attention from its almost year-long war in Ukraine. Dow futures up around 65. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Members of the Boston City Council will hold their first hearing today on Mayor Michelle Wu's rent control proposal. The plan ties annual rent increases in the city to inflation with a maximum hike of 10 percent. It first needs approval from the city council. Then it must be approved by the state legislature and the governor before becoming law. Rhode Island Congressman David Cicilline is leaving Congress after more than a decade. He announced yesterday he'll step down to become the next president and CEO of the Rhode Island Foundation. From our editorial partners at the Publix Radio, Ian Donis has a story. The 61-year-old Democrat says he thinks he can make a bigger impact by succeeding outgoing Rhode Island Foundation President CEO Neil Steinberg. I think in a place like Rhode Island, where the president and CEO of the Rhode Island Foundation is at the center of every important issue in some way or another, this will give me an opportunity to have an even greater impact in our great state. Cicilline will more than triple his salary to $650,000 a year with the new job starting June 1st. A lengthy list of people are now considering running for the open CD1 seat, including multiple state lawmakers, Central Falls Mayor Maria Rivera, and former gubernatorial candidate Helena Folks. For the Publix Radio, I'm Ian Donis. The Lunar New Year will be designated as an official holiday in the city of Boston. The city council passed a resolution last week supporting the idea. The Lunar New Year is a key holiday in many Asian American cultures. It's already a holiday in the state of California and in New York City. Boston starts formally recognizing the holiday next year on February 10th. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. We'll see a little bit of the sun this morning before clouds move in, bringing a chance of rain this afternoon. It'll be windy and in the low 40s. Tonight, a good chance of a messy mix of rain and freezing rain. It'll still be windy with temperatures in the low 30s. The rain continues tomorrow morning, possibly turning to freezing rain in the afternoon. It'll be windy and in the mid-30s. It's 39 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. 
In the two weeks since an earthquake claimed tens of thousands of lives in Turkey and Syria, survivors in Syria have been pleading for help. Aid was relatively quick to reach Turkey, which is a NATO ally, but rescue efforts in northwest Syria were hampered by more than a decade of war between President Assad's regime and opposition groups. Ismail al-Abdullah is a volunteer with the Syria Civil Defense, better known as the White Helmets. The organization responds to emergencies in opposition-controlled parts of Syria. Their work includes evacuations and search and rescue. He joins us now from Idlib in northwest Syria. Good morning. Good morning. So the UN says three border crossings into North Syria are now operational for aid deliveries with dozens of trucks already on the way. What have you gotten so far? We uh, we received aid uh, for those who now are homeless and uh, for people who were affected by the earthquake. Uh, because we called for the help from the very beginning, from the first hour. We knew that from, from the first hour that the earth disaster, it's bigger than us. It's beyond our capacity. We, we said that we need help from the very beginning to help those who were beneath the rubble. Yeah. And we asked for uh, advanced uh, equipment to can help us to locate those who uh, trapped beneath the rubble. But now uh, the state of emergency now somehow we uh, not as the beginning. And uh, this aid, I hope, and we all hope this aid will be enough, and the UN will deliver more and more. What do you still need? We talking here. We talking here about more than forty thousand people who were affected by the earthquake. Just in Idlib. Just in Idlib, across northwest Syria. Mm-hmm. This area, forty thousand. Those people now are homeless. Need shelter. Need medical care. I give you an example to make it clear for everyone. The, those people who are injured by the earthquake, they need surgeries. So now, not all of them undergone uh, surgeries and uh, they are waiting for their uh, a space for a bit in the hospital to mm-hmm. get the proper surgery so imagine this example a pregnant woman uh, has fracture and uh, his her condition is very very bad she is, was waiting for her uh, to get the surgery proper surgery and then get back to the uh, the, the 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 camp mm-hmm. and she uh, in normal conditions she needs uh, she needs maybe to stay in the hospital for three months or four months to recover from this uh, bad condition but given to the situation and due to the uh, lack of the medical supplies and the hospitals here in northwest Syria, she has to go and uh, and to stay in the camps so what we need medical supply enough those uh, injured people we need uh, even psychological support for those after the shock after the shock of the uh, of the earthquake and uh, you heard uh, you heard and you maybe you saw that an earthquake hit the region yes another one 6.3 yeah 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 it, it was to be honest it's one it was scary more than first more than the first one because because we uh, experienced it and we saw uh, painful uh, images and we witnessed uh, people how they were under the uh, under the rubble entire families it's very difficult 
Ismail Ali Abdullah is a volunteer with the White Helmets in Idlib, Syria. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Here in the United States, Seattle has become the first city in this country to ban discrimination based on caste. That new law in the Pacific Northwest applies to the social hierarchy into which many South Asians are born or are told that they are born. Some people opposed the legislation. Here's Liliana Fowler from our member station KNKX. There was a bit of chaos at Seattle City Hall ahead of yesterday's vote to ban caste discrimination. Both those for and against the idea gathered in the lobby hours before the vote was set to take place. Some held signs that read, heal from caste. But others accused Seattle City Council member Shama Sawan, an immigrant from India, who first introduced the proposal a month ago, of not doing her due diligence. I completely request you to consider this, take time, there's no rush, understand it properly. As council members prepared to vote, hundreds of people signed up for public comment. Some thought of the proposal as anti-Hindu, but the majority urged city officials to take their experiences with discrimination seriously. I say ban caste and vote yes. I'm facing caste distribution from the age of five. I used to touch the lady and she used to take a shower because they were considered as untouchable. It was such a disgusting thing. And the same thing happening in the United States. The new law will add caste to a list of protected classes, such as race, age, and religion. It's meant to protect workers from South Asia who are members of oppressed castes and experience discrimination in Seattle. NPR sat down with one software engineer who works in Seattle on an H-1B visa. He says his manager discriminated against him after finding out he was a Dalit, formerly known as an untouchable, the lowest stratum of castes in India. And immediately after that, he stopped uh, assigning me critical work. The tech worker, who asked not to be named because of possible repercussions at his company, says he's already beginning to look for a new job. People never leave their caste. They might leave their country. The caste never leaves. He and other supporters of the measure to ban caste discrimination say they hope other cities will copy Seattle and soon pass similar bills. For NPR News, I'm Liliana Fowler in Seattle. This afternoon, in All Things Considered, at least 12 whales have washed up on beaches in New York and New Jersey in the last couple of months. Seems the latest whale collided with a ship but some people never let the facts get in the way. They're spreading misinformation and blaming the development of offshore wind farms for the whale's trouble. To hear the story, stream NPR on your smartphone or computer, or just crank up your wind-powered radio. This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, why an imported wasp is emerging as a hero in the fight to bring ash trees back to New England. 
And in our next hour, we learn about the army of citizen spies loyal to Ukraine who conspired to help free the southern port city of Kherson. Today and tomorrow may be pretty messy. It'll start out with partly sunny skies this morning, but high winds quickly bring clouds in this afternoon, and there's a chance of rain. Temperatures will be in the low 40s. Tonight, those fall to the low 30s, and there's a good chance of rain and freezing rain. The showers likely continue tomorrow morning, and it may turn into freezing rain in the afternoon. Thursday will also be windy, and we won't make it out of the mid-30s. Right now, it's 39 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. Now in business news, the number of homes sold in Massachusetts last month was down more than 30 percent compared to the same time last year. The Massachusetts Association of Realtors reports over 2,200 homes were closed on in January. Condo sales were down 25 percent. David McCarthy is president of the association. He says rising interest rates are playing a major role in the drop in sales. One of the bigger driving factors in the decrease in home sales is the number of sellers that we stole from the market. They're going to sit tight with their 3 percent, 3.5 percent interest rate and not make a move up or down in their community The data also show the median selling price for a single-family home last month was $520,000, the same as a year ago. The head of the Worcester-based Fallon Health is stepping down. Richard Burke has been CEO of the company for the last eight years. He'll stay on the job until his replacement is found. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed a hiring platform dedicated to helping businesses find the right people. Businesses can attract, screen, and interview candidates, all from the employer dashboard. More at indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Scientists in New England are hoping a tiny insect can help solve a major regional problem. They're testing whether an imported wasp can make a difference in the struggle to bring New England's ash trees back. As Patrick Scahill reports, these wasps seem to be taking on harmful, invasive emerald ash borers. We're hunting for ash trees on a rainy day in eastern Connecticut. With me is Jian Duan, a federal research entomologist who specializes in biological control. On a mostly dead ash tree covered with holes, he peels back the bark, and there, curled up inside, is an emerald ash borer larva. Jian, let's collect it. But Duan isn't just collecting emerald ash borers. Today, he's also looking for its predator, one released here on purpose in 2019 and 2020. Spacious glina. It's a tiny stingless wasp, about the size of a mosquito, but scientists have big hopes for it. Native to the Russian Far East, this wasp naturally targets and attacks emerald ash borer. Because emerald ash borer in its native range, Northeast Asia, do not kill trees like this. And if the experiment works, the borers won't kill as many trees here either. You have to do the top part, yeah. 
As Duan and his assistant peel more bark and pull more larvae from the tree, they still can't find the Russian wasp or two other species introduced here. So they decide to cut down the tree to study it further. Connecticut and Massachusetts began using biocontrol agents to combat emerald ash borer starting in 2013. Similar experiments are underway in Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont in the hopes of stopping a devastating pattern. Claire Rutledge with the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station says when EAB feeds on trees, it cuts off key nutrient pathways. For ash trees, that's death by a thousand cuts. One larva is not a big deal. 20 larvae are not a big deal. 2,000 larvae kill the tree. Federal officials estimate EAB has cost municipalities, nursery operators, and the forest product industry tens of millions of dollars. And it's disrupted the making of culturally important products like baskets and baseball bats. Shortly after EAB arrived, DNA testing traced its origin to Northeast Asia. Duan, the federal research entomologist, traveled to Russia, trekking through cold forests to collect wasps that only prey on EAB. Samples were brought to America, quarantined, and carefully tested for years to ensure the wasps wouldn't kill any other non-target species. Now they're trying to find out if it's working. Back at the fallen ash tree, the wood is cut into meter-long segments. Bit by bit, Duan and Rutledge peel back the bark, looking for ash borer and evidence of the wasps. Rutledge says it's too late for the wasp to stop the massive wave of EAB that's killing older ash trees. But there is hope for the younger trees that are just starting to grow. When regeneration starts to happen, after the EAB levels drop, the parasitoids will be able to keep those populations down so that the new ash can grow and escape. Here today, they didn't find the wasp, but they did find parasitoids just a few miles away at another site they're studying. And as recently as last year, Rutledge says they found reproducing populations of wasps initially introduced in 2013. So it looks like it's working. The wasps are sticking around and spreading. So I'm really, you know, cautiously optimistic. The problem with biocontrol is it's going to be 10 or 15 years later when we see how much of a resurgence the ash manages. And even then, she says, it's going to be a long time before we see big, healthy ash trees in New England forests. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show and brighten up my morning. Good morning, Tiziana. Happy Hump Day. Happy Hump Day. I will brighten up your morning, but I'm going to start by doing it by looking back, because that story on the ash trees just now made me... Do you remember when Martha Biebinger did the story with people who submitted their favorite trees? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right? And they told the story... Wonderful story. So let me invite you to invoke Martha in your life today and think about the tree in your neighborhood that like makes you happy and that you kind of want to hug. I love that. So there you go. There's Thank your you. cheering up today. All, <laughs> All right. right. Now, you there is a on? show we need to talk about, oh, Radio okay, Boston. <laughs> we do that at 11. And we actually have our first conversation since she became attorney general with Andrea Campbell. 
today. So she's going to join us for the first half of the hour. A lot of, you know, news of the day stuff, a lot of uh, kerfuffle going on about the drug lab scandal right now. So news of the day like that. And then some big priorities from her. I'm really interested in talking to her about how she wants to handle guns, Mm -hmm. for example. Um, And she's gotten some other criminal justice reform priorities. So should be a pretty substantive chat. Do you have any time after that? Uh, We do, and we have a couple of other segments that will be quite fun. (laughs) I look forward to it. Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston. Today at 11, it's 7.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Give back to your community with a mental health and wellness degree from Lesley University. Get started at lesley.edu. The Turkish city of Gaziantep is famous for its food, especially baklava. This dessert is the symbol of this city. But it was also at the center of the earthquake earlier this month. My friend here maybe carried out over 20 bodies out of the rubble. We visit a baklava bakery in the city that has started baking again on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Moonlight, 12 Years a Slave, Vice, The Big Short. These films were all produced by a powerhouse with a little-known name. Dee Dee Gardner is the only woman to have won two Best Picture Oscars. As NPR's Mandalita Del Barco reports, Gardner and her partners at Plan B Entertainment could break that record at this year's Academy Awards. Dee Dee Gardner produced three big films this year. Blonde stars Best Actress nominee Anna de Armas. Marilyn Monroe only exists on the screen. Another film, she said, is a drama about the New York Times investigation into former Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein. This is bigger than Weinstein. This is about the system protecting abusers. And Best Picture nominee Women Talking dramatizes a group of abused women in a conservative religious colony. We know that we've not imagined these attacks. We know that we are bruised and infected and pregnant and some of us are dead. Gardner says these films have something in common. They obviously all in their own and respective ways deal with sexual assault. Violence against women is a real thing all over the world. In very different ways, all three movies are insisting on this truth. Gardner has made a career of producing audacious movies. I've kind of always had a gut instinct about it. I don't see any point in telling stories that have already been told. I'm really interested in what other people have to say. Gardner was born in Chicago in 1967 and studied English at Columbia University. She worked in theater and at the William Morris Agency in New York before coming to L.A., where she worked her way from location scout to Paramount Pictures Director of Development. Seventeen years ago, she was hired as president of Plan B Entertainment, a production company founded by Brad Gray, Brad Pitt, and his then-wife, Jennifer Aniston. I knew I wanted to produce, and I knew I wanted to be very hands-on. They were clearly very smart, and they had optioned some really interesting books. I didn't think any of those three principles would be on the ground, on the set, for months at a time, producing the movies. So I thought, oh, maybe this is a real opportunity to do that. At Plan B, Gardner finds stories to make into films, then works on financing, casting, production, logistics, editing, promotions. She helped steer Moonlight and 12 Years a Slave to top prize Oscar wins and five others to Best Picture nominations, including Selma in 2015, The Big Short in 2016, and Minari in 2021. 
basically whatever Dee Dee does, it turns to gold. <laughs> Jessie Buckley is one of the actresses in Women Talking. She says Gardner has changed the culture of making movies. The age of bullying and creating a kind of power dynamic on set is gone. And you have women like Dee Dee who are actually paving the way for a much healthier and humane way to create. She's a producer who consciously thinks about creating a set where there is care on a set. That includes ensuring there are therapists on set for the cast and crew in case they're triggered, according to She Said actress Carrie Mulligan. She was always there to make the set feel really comfortable because obviously we were touching on difficult things. There were real survivors who were participating in the film. Mulligan says Gardner also makes sure her productions are family friendly with decent working hours. It just makes a huge difference. You know, we'd be done in time that I could get back and put the kids to bed. She says, how do you make a change if you want to give respect to your cast and your crew? You bake it into the budget. Actress Frances McDormand says she always admired Gardner's film choices and she sought her out to co-produce Women Talking. Her personal politics when it comes to storytelling is really, there's an edge to it that is always exciting. And she's just articulate. I think that she could, in fact, direct a film. Her intellect is so crisp and so expansive. She understands that a film, a, a really good film, is not made by committee that it has a vision, and that vision comes from one person. Gardner says she cherishes her relationships with visionaries like filmmaker Barry Jenkins, who directed Moonlight. Who is you, Sharon? Jenkins and Gardner worked on several projects, including Moonlight and the Underground Railroad miniseries. Dee Dee is this combination of an extremely like hyper-intelligent person, but also a hyper-empathetic uh, person. As a producer myself now, she's a great example to follow. You know, she's very adamant about protecting the artist's voice. Gardner says protecting those voices is important as the film industry has become more risk-averse. Yes, it feels to me like a moment where people are sort of battening down the hatches and picking the safe lane. I understand it. The theatrical landscape feels much less reliable than it used to. So I get it. But also, I want daring, risky stuff to be made. With a new investor, Plan B is expanding. And Dee Dee Gardner says she's excited about making even more daring and risky movies. Mandali Del Barco, NPR News, Hollywood. Okay, let's take a moment to appreciate a great New Orleans band leader. In the mid to late 50s, Huey Piano Smith and his clowns turned out classics like Don't You Just Know It. That put Smith, who died last week, at the forefront of the New Orleans R&B sound that would heavily influence rock and roll. A big influence even though the record industry was not kind. Smith was routinely cheated out of royalties and he largely stopped performing by the 1980s. He later declared bankruptcy and according to his biographer, Huey Piano Smith had to pawn his piano. Hmm. Dr. John was one of the many pianists who followed in Huey Smith's footsteps and fingertips as he told NPR back in 2010. You could tell a New Orleans guy by not so much what he did, but what he left out, the space he left in the music to get a little more funky. It's like uh, if you listen to, say, Huey Smith's record of 
I got the rack and pneumonia and the boogie woogie flu. The whole song is loaded with breaks to leave the drum a little extra space to just do something. I got a rack and pneumonia and a boogie woogie flu. And it was just kind of the attitude of all the guys did that. All of that influenced other people from other places that played down there a lot. Huey Piano Smith was 89 years old. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Fadel. Some sun this morning in the low 40s, then clouds, rain, and wind this afternoon. Tonight, rain and freezing rain likely. It'll be windy and in the low 30s. It's 39 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Experts say Russian President Vladimir Putin's withdrawal from a crucial treaty could mean the era of nuclear arms control is over. It's Wednesday, February 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the family of Malcolm X has announced that it's filing a wrongful death suit against the FBI and New York Police Department. Also this hour, the story of a secret network of civilians who liberated the Ukrainian port city of Kherson. I was really scared the first time I was on the roof. We're not professional spies, we are amateurs. But if not us, then who? And it's been nearly a year since El Salvador declared a state of emergency to go after gangs. Thousands of people have been jailed and opponents say the government is going too far. In medical terms, it's like having a brain tumor and treating it by cutting off the head. Cloudy, windy and low 40s today. Rain and freezing rain tonight. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. There are numerous winter weather cautions posted all across the country. Blizzard warnings are up in the central states, and Minnesota could see two feet of snow. Some schools are closed there, as well as in the Dakotas and in Wisconsin. Farther west, snow and ice are hitting California's high mountains. California Highway Patrol Officer Monique Michaud says the state will close roadways if necessary, even the very busy Tejon Pass that lies north of Los Angeles. It's going to be a safety concern. If it is not safe for the motoring public to use those highways, we will shut them down. That's why we want people to prepare in advance. On the East Coast, winter storm warnings with heavy snow are also posted from upstate New York into Maine. That region could also get sleet today. Preliminary hearings begin today for the person suspected of fatally shooting and injuring dozens of people last year at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs. From Colorado Public Radio, Lucretia Wembley has more. Prosecutors will be presenting their case against the accused Club Q shooter beginning Wednesday in Colorado Springs. Five people were killed in the shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs last year. At least 19 others were injured. The suspect is facing more than 320 charges, including first-degree murder, attempted murder, and bias-motivated crimes or hate crimes. A preliminary hearing is used to determine if there is sufficient evidence to proceed to trial. 
There is also a possibility the defendant could waive his right to a hearing if enough solid evidence is stacked against him. For NPR News, I'm Lucretia Wembley in Colorado Springs. President Biden is spending his last day in Poland meeting with leaders of several Eastern European nations. These were once controlled by the former Soviet Union. The Allies are talking about continuing their aid efforts to Ukraine. The first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is this Friday. Russia's legislature has officially voted to suspend the new START nuclear treaty with the United States. As NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports, experts are worried about the possibility of a new arms race. New START caps the number of deployed nuclear weapons to 1,550 on each side. That number stands in stark contrast to the peak of the Cold War when the U.S. and Russia had tens of thousands of nuclear weapons at the ready. New START is just the latest in a number of treaties to come to a halt. James Acton is with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. There has been a steady unrolling of arms control. This, I think, has undermined you know, the security of everybody involved. For now, Russia says it will keep to the limits set out in the treaty, but each side has thousands of weapons in storage waiting to be deployed. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Maura Healey is taking a new step to protect abortion access in the state. She joined a newly formed group called the Reproductive Freedom Alliance. It's made up of 20 governors, all Democrats, including leaders from Maine, Rhode Island and Connecticut. Healey says their goal is to share ideas that will further expand access to reproductive care in their states. In Worcester, new police body cameras will be activated as soon as an officer pulls out their gun or taser. More than 300 officers will begin wearing the cameras on Monday. The city's police chief says the cameras will help improve accountability for both police and citizens. Video from those cameras will be uploaded to a website after each officer's shift. The department says that will ensure the video is preserved and won't be altered. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley met yesterday with survivors of the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing to discuss the newly passed Post-Disaster Mental Health Response Act. That law expands mental health support for survivors of natural disasters, terror attacks, and other violence. It was partly inspired by Boston Marathon survivors, including Manya Chalinski. A patient comes to the clinic, gets screened, we create this system, we test various devices, we understand which one works better. Prior to the law, short-term mental health resources were only available to survivors of events that qualified for major disaster declarations. Some local engineers are hoping 3D-printed hearts can help doctors treat aortic stenosis. That's a type of heart disease. MIT and Harvard joint Ph.D. student Luca Rosalia says the models are printed with a flexible material. He says they're customized to each patient. A patient comes to the clinic, it gets screened, we create this system, we test various devices, we understand which one works better for this specific patient, and then uh, they end up like using one device and then another. The device can also be used for medical device and lab research. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. 
A heads up for drivers on 93 northbound in Canton. The road is closed right now before Route 138 because of a truck crash. That's causing some big backups on 95. A sunny start this morning, but clouds move in by the afternoon. It'll be in the mid-40s. A wintry mix moves in this evening. Less than an inch of snow is expected in the higher elevations around Worcester and Fitchburg. No accumulation anywhere else. It'll drop down to the 30s. Some rain and sleet tomorrow. It'll be in the mid-30s. After that, it should stay dry through the weekend. It's 39 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include BetterHelp committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Fadil. The southern port city of Kherson was the first major Ukrainian city occupied by Russian forces. With deep historical ties to Russia, it was not expected to be a center of resistance. But an army of citizen spies defied Moscow's expectations and helped Ukrainian forces liberate the city last November. NPR's Joanna Kakissis has the story of Kherson and its citizens turned partisans. Let's start with the day of the invasion, February 24th, 2022. Tatiana Horobtseva, a retired physics teacher, remembers it began as a beautiful day. She remembers making breakfast and watching from her balcony as the sun rose, turning the sky pink and illuminating green fields bursting with the winter harvest. And then I heard the explosions, and then I saw the explosions, one near the airport, then a second, the third at a gas station that seemed to turn everything red. Harabsova started to cry. She was born in Russia and did not believe the Russians would ever invade. Kherson used to be a Russian-speaking city. Many here had friends and family in Russia. But she says she and her husband are clear about their loyalties. We have a Ukrainian flag on our TV and a poster that says, Putin, get out. That's my poster, by the way. Their daughters in western Ukraine begged them to evacuate. But they stayed, along with their youngest daughter, Irina, who wanted to resist. The first days of the invasion were chaotic. Ukrainian soldiers fought to keep Russian paratroopers off the Antonovka Bridge, which crosses the Dnipro River into the city of Kherson. Said he, a soldier from a local brigade, remembers wondering why Ukrainian authorities had not blown up the bridge on the first day of the invasion. It should have been blown up that would have slowed down the Russian troops. Said he would not reveal his last name because he's in the military. He says he got his wife and children out of Kherson, and then he turned to a special mission. To destroy the enemy's equipment and enemy troops, and also to find and kill collaborators. Many civilians offered to help, including Oksana Pahomi, a 59-year-old accountant and city council member. 
with her dyed fire red hair braided into a rat tail. Bahami looks like a cross between Cindy Lauper and the Viking. She and others protested as Russian soldiers took over the city. The resistance was everywhere. I remember this boy with an amputated leg in the Central Market. He played the guitar and sang the Ukrainian national anthem. It was really brave. Across Kherson, ordinary civilians became partisans, forming espionage cells reporting to the Ukrainian military and security services. Pahomi joined one cell with at least 30 members. She kept tabs on who was collaborating with Russian forces. I saw there were three types of people in her song. Those who will die for Ukraine, those who will die for Russia, and those who do not care, who are like, Ukraine is okay, but Russia took over now, and that's also okay. Pahomi took photos and videos and eavesdropped on conversations, then passed on the information to Ukraine's security services. Suspected collaborators included some of her own fellow city council members and even some classmates. We saw a list of those who organized the referendum to join Russia. And on that list was the son of one of my classmates, and she was a teacher of Ukrainian history. Pahomi's closest friend, Olha Chupikova, a 48-year-old landscape designer, also became a spy. She lived near the Antonovka Bridge. She served as the eyes and ears of the Ukrainian military. I told them everything I saw about Russian troops, where they live, where they put their vehicles. Sometimes I'd pretended I was going to the grocery store or waiting for the bus. I'm not saying I'm Agent 007, but I just did whatever made sense to me. With her pixie cut and bright blue eyes, she looks like a Minnesota soccer mom who's about to offer you a freshly baked pie. They wanted us to look average, unremarkable, not easy to remember so we could work undetected, as if we were moving between drops of rain. They used Google Maps to find coordinates of Russian convoys and sent them via signal to a contact in Ukraine's military. When cell phone service was weak, she would climb to the roof of her house and throw her phone up in the air, hoping for a signal to send her messages. I was really scared the first time I was on the roof. We are not professional spies, we are amateurs. But if not us, then who? Russian troops were watching everyone closely. Chupikova says residents were getting arrested for simply giving Russian soldiers dirty looks. Tatiana Harabsova, the retired teacher who watched the invasion from her balcony, worried for her daughter, Irina. She says Irina spent months driving all over the city, giving rides to nurses and doctors secretly helping injured Ukrainians. And then on May 13th, Irina's 37th birthday, two cars pulled up outside the house. There were 11 guys armed to the teeth, with their faces covered, wearing military uniforms and waving machine guns and pistols. Six went upstairs to our apartment and right to Irina's room. She didn't deny anything. She said, yes, I'm a Ukrainian patriot and I hate you. And they took her away. Hundreds of others disappeared too, including the elected mayor of Kherson, who was arrested in June. 
By the end of summer, several members of Oleksandr Dyakov's espionage cell had also been arrested. Dyakov, a shy, bearded apartment manager, had spent months spying on Russian-installed politicians for Ukraine security services. I knew that sooner or later the Russians would find me too. They arrested me when I was hiding at a friend's house. They covered his head and took him to a prison cell. He says the Russian soldiers beat him repeatedly and also tortured him with electric shocks. They kicked me so badly in my leg and kept saying, we're going to break it. My leg got infected. I begged for a doctor. After more than two weeks of detention, he was loaded into a van and driven to what looked like the outskirts of town. I thought they were taking me not to the doctor, but to the forest. To the forest so they could execute you. Yeah. Have they done that to other people, you know? I know many people who died. The Russians ended up taking Dyakov to a hospital, and a doctor there helped him escape instead of returning him to Russian custody. The underground resistance was having an impact. Politicians installed by the Russians were assassinated. When Ukraine got sophisticated missiles from the U.S., military officials say the partisans helped Ukrainian troops target sites like the Antonovka Bridge, which cut off Russian supply routes. And by November, Ukrainian forces had pushed the Russians to the other side of the Dnipro River. On the night of November 10th, Oleksandr Dyakov heard a convoy of vehicles outside his bedroom. They were blasting Ukrainian music, and I realized our guys were entering the city. Every day we were waiting for this. By the next morning, Ukrainian troops controlled the city. Residents poured into the streets and cheered. Oksana Pohomi, the city councilwoman, helped replace Russian flags with Ukrainian ones. Her former classmate, who had helped Russians try to annex Kherson, tried to stop her. She said, what are you doing? Maybe the Russians will come back. Pohomi says the classmate and her family soon left for Russia. Other pro-Russian residents fled across the Dnipro River to a part of the Kherson region still occupied by Russian forces. More than three months after liberation, Russian forces remain across the river, less than a mile away. And they hit Kherson every day with rockets, missiles or artillery. More than 80 civilians have died. Only 60,000 people of the city's pre-war population of 300,000 remain. Oh man, that smells nice. Pahomi now runs a volunteer bakery with her friend Olha Chupikova, the one who used to spy on the Russian military near the Antonovka Bridge. They are dusted with flour as they show us around. Pahomi says they deliver the free bread to residents. We never try to force anyone to stay, because not everyone can take it. I know people who don't leave their homes. I know people who could handle the shelling at first, but then something broke inside them after the shelling killed people. They stopped eating and drinking, and I said, it's time to leave. 
many partisans are still missing, presumed to be somewhere in Russian custody. Tatiana Harabsova's daughter, Irina, is among them. Harabsova is pleading with her fellow ethnic Russians to free her daughter. Harabsova's Russian roots are now a deep source of heartache. I feel ashamed, she says, as if it was me personally who started this terrible war. <laughs> Joanna Kikisis, NPR News, Kherson. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, human rights complaints are mounting in El Salvador, with the government there vowing to continue a state of emergency that has allowed officials to jail thousands of people. It's 819. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. All right, so you hit snooze one too many times, you can't find your keys, but Morning Edition from NPR News is right there for you and makes starting your day a little bit easier. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums. Open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries. Free Sundays and new museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. Today on Radio Boston, a conversation with Attorney General Andrea Campbell. She's been in office for about a month. She'll join Tiziana Deering to talk about her priorities and her journey to the office. That's today at 11 on Radio Boston. Partly sunny and windy this morning with highs in the lower 40s. It turns cloudy this afternoon and there's a chance of rain. Tonight, a good chance of rain and freezing rain. It'll be in the low 30s. Tomorrow, rain in the morning with a chance of freezing rain in the afternoon. We'll have a high in the mid-30s. Also, with some strong winds. It's 39 degrees in Boston at NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. And from EBSCO with EBSCO Community, where libraries and library service providers come together to share ideas around open access, open source, and open infrastructure at communities.ebsco.com. And from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. For almost a year, El Salvador has lived under what the government calls a state of exception, like an exception to the rules. Authorities suspended some basic civil rights. The government jailed more than 60,000 people, saying it was fighting gang violence. A violent country did become peaceful, although there was a cost. Here's NPR's Ada Peralta. 
A few years ago, you wouldn't dream of walking through this part of Soyapango. My daughters grew up with panic. They asked, what are we doing here? We are waiting to be killed? Vilma and her friend Orbelina were outside in a field watching their grandkids play. Like everyone in the story, they've asked us to use only their first names because they're afraid of government reprisals. Orbelina says she once got caught in the crossfire. Bodies used to be left in the alleys of this neighborhood. Now, this whole city is surrounded by troops, and this place is now peaceful. I asked Orbelina if the change is real. It's real. It's a huge, huge change. Indeed, the military has swept through neighborhoods like these. By some estimates, they have thrown about 2% of El Salvador's population in jail. And you feel it here. Buses run empty, businesses are shuttered, and most of the people you see on the streets are children, women, or older men. Onofrito is 68 years old, and he's helping his daughter renovate her house. The new piece gave her enough confidence to build, he says. In the old days, if someone tried to deliver this cement, he says, he'd be taxed by the gangs. The gangs terrorize communities, they harass citizens, they turn neighborhoods into war zones. So on these streets, you hear little sympathy. Let them rot in jail, kill them, people told me. Pero Nofrito says innocent people have gotten picked up too. He points to a house near a coconut tree. The old man there, he said, was innocent, but he was taken and he wasn't released for more than a month. When he came back, he looked terrible. His mind was gone, he was weak, he looked yellow. But maybe that's the way it's got to be. Someone always pays the price. We keep walking and we get a reminder that things are more complicated than they appear. This new El Salvador is the work of President Nayib Bukele. In 2019, he inherited a country with one of the worst homicide rates in the world. And now he's touting more than 300 days without a killing. Ruth Lopez of the human rights group Cristosal says this comes along with the runaway authoritarianism. What we have is a rupture of democracy, a rupture of the constitution. Bukele, she says, has taken a hold of all three branches of government. He has installed loyal judges and loyal lawmakers. He has defied the constitution and says he will run for a third term. And this war on gangs, she says, has been undertaken with reckless disregard for human life. The suspension of constitutional guarantees means Salvadorans can be held for months, years even, without charges. Human Rights Watch says the government has been arbitrary, picking up more than 1,000 children. In medical terms, it's like having a brain tumor and treating it by cutting off the head. Lopez says this is not sustainable. What happens when gang members are let out of prison? What happens to the families who lost parents, who lost children? Plus, she says, all the social problems that led so many Salvadorans to join gangs are not being addressed. That means this is a temporary solution. In an interview with NPR, Gustavo Villatoro, El Salvador's justice minister, says they studied the gangs. And this is a measured approach for a huge problem. You only have one way, to use 
all your tools that you have in your constitution to fight against another inconstitutional government. Viatoro says they've built the biggest prison in Central America, and all of those gang members won't leave, quote, walking. He shrugs off the concerns of human rights groups. We have more than six million supporting the whole strategy. And he's mostly right. Salvadorans by and large support President Bukele. In a recent independent poll, Bukele had an 84% approval rating. Back in Soyapango, we tracked down Jose at the house near the coconut tree. He's in his 60s. Decades ago, he moved to San Salvador from a rural region. I didn't see a TV until I was 25 years old. To make ends meet, he sells vegetables and bread. And he has no idea why police barged into his house in the middle of the night. He has no tattoos. The gangs would steal from him. So he has no idea why he was taken to jail and thrown in a tiny cell with more than 20 others. They slept on the floor, and it was so crowded, they had to sleep on their sides. They gave us a spoonful of beans and two bags of water. He spent more than a month in jail. Like most of those arrested, he was charged with unlawful association. They let him out because he was near death. I never imagined that I would end up behind bars. That they would take all of my clothes. That I will have to use the bathroom in front of everyone. His wife told me that they are Christian, so they forgive the government. I ask Jose if he feels the same. He nods, but his eyes grow teary. Para mí fue incómodo. Fue incómodo el dolor. No lo voy a superar. This pain, he says, he'll never get over it. He hits his knees with his fists to stop himself from crying and turns to scripture. Porque la Biblia habla también va que hasta que para arrancar el, el trigo no vaya a ser que arranquemos la cizaña. The parable of weeds, he says. In it, Jesus warns that one should be careful that if you're in a hurry to pull the weeds, you could also root out the wheat. Ada Pralta, NPR News, San Salvador. You hear amazing reporting like that on NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, a new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll finds President Biden with his highest approval ratings in almost a year. And the family of Malcolm X says it will sue government agencies, including the New York Police Department. It's 829. Join us at City Space Tuesday, March 14th to celebrate National Pie Day with Lauren Coe, baker and author of New York Times bestselling cookbook, Pieometry. Tickets are at wbwar.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes, cambridgeculinary.com.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Snow is forecast for much of California. It's part of a large winter weather system spreading across the U.S. west into the northern plains and Midwest. Blizzards, brutal cold, and record snowfall are predicted. President Biden wraps up his brief tour to Europe today with more meetings about the war in Ukraine. NPR's Asma Khalid reports from Warsaw. On this final day of Biden's visit to Warsaw, he's meeting with the Secretary General of NATO and leaders of the Bucharest Nine. That's a group of countries on NATO's eastern flank that were previously tied to Moscow during the Cold War and sit dangerously close to this current conflict. Leaders of this group have been critical of Russia's aggression in Ukraine and came together after Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014. Biden is meeting with them to reaffirm the United States' support for the NATO alliance. In a speech in Warsaw Tuesday evening, Biden insisted NATO is more united than ever before. Asma Khalid, NPR News. The latest NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll shows President Biden with his highest approval ratings in almost a year. The poll reports the president's overall approval with adults is 46 percent, with registered voters 49. Inside his own party and among Democratic-leaning independents, 50 percent of those surveyed believe that President Biden would be the strongest candidate in 24. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A local lobbying group is launching a six-figure ad campaign against Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's rent control plan. The proposal ties annual rent increases to inflation with a maximum increase of 10 percent. The Greater Boston Real Estate Board is behind the new ad campaign. It claims the rent control plan would cut down on development. Any kind of rent control needs approval from the city council, state legislature and governor before going into effect. Lawyers for people convicted with evidence tested at a now-closed state drug lab want new trials for their clients. Former state chemist Annie Ducan falsified results at the lab in Jamaica Plain. It was believed she was the only bad actor, but newly released records show several other lab employees may have also played a role in tampering with results. The Boston Globe reports lawyers for several defendants requested their clients be given new trials or be allowed to withdraw their guilty pleas. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley met yesterday with survivors of the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing to discuss the newly passed Post-Disaster Mental Health Response Act. That law expands mental health support for survivors of natural disasters, terror attacks, and other violence. It was partly inspired by marathon bombing survivors, including Manya Chelinsky. But it just felt to me like I kept knocking on doors and kept saying, can you help me? This thing happened to me, can you help me? And at various places being turned away. If I was going to get help, I had to figure it out myself. Um, And I'm grateful that I was able to find some of the right places. But I know many people that I met later who never found some of the resources that I found. Prior to the law, short-term mental health resources were only available to survivors of events that qualified for major disaster declarations. 
A Nantucket resident says she is in disbelief after getting back a treasured gift stolen from her five decades ago. Jay Riggs' late husband gave her a traditional lightship basket with her name carved on it for Christmas in 1958. Three months later, a thief stole it at a Florida airport. Years later, Riggs saw the basket listed on eBay for $1,000 but didn't buy it. Then last week, a friend spotted the basket in a Nantucket antique store, and shop owner John Sylvia gave it back to Riggs. Oh, I could not believe it. After all those years, it was 53 years that I lost it, and at least 25 or 30 that the person called about the eBay. We don't know where it's been all that time, but anyway, it was very nice of John to give it to me, and I'm thrilled to have it back. Riggs now displays that basket on her mantle. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, icaboston.org. We'll see a little bit of the sun this morning before clouds move in, bringing a chance of rain this afternoon. It'll be windy and in the low 40s. Tonight, a good chance of a messy mix of rain and freezing rain. It'll still be windy with temperatures in the low 30s. The rain continues tomorrow morning, possibly turning to freezing rain in the afternoon. It'll be windy and in the mid-30s. It's 39 degrees in Boston at 835. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com NPR. And from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox business insurance experts. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The 2024 presidential election is taking shape. Many Republicans are hoping to prevent another Trump presidency, but so far, only former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has officially announced she'll run for the job. President Biden is also expected to announce he'll seek re-election in 2024. A new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll out this morning takes a measure of how voters in both parties feel about their prospective nominees. Domenico Montanaro has the numbers. He is NPR's senior political editor and correspondent. Domenico, hi there. Glad to be here. I guess any presidential election needs to start with the incumbent if he might be running again. How do Democrats and voters generally feel about Joe Biden? Well, Biden's approval rating has actually ticked up to 46 percent with more than the 1,300 total respondents in the poll. And it's an even higher 49 percent with the 1,200 registered voters in the poll. And that 46 percent is the highest since March of last year. He hasn't been at 49 percent since the withdrawal from Afghanistan in August of 2021. And he's really benefited here from a rebound with Democrats. And in this hyperpartisan atmosphere, a president really needs his base shored up. One warning sign here, though, is that he's still lagging with independents. Just 36 percent of them approve of the job Biden is doing. Nevertheless, if he's rebounding with Democrats, does that mean Democrats are no longer looking around for some other candidate? 
Well, this really jumped out in the survey. You know, there's been a reversal here in Biden's favor. Back in November, right before the midterms, we asked Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents whether they had a better chance of winning the presidency in 2024 with Biden or with someone else. 54% then said someone else. Now 50% say that their best shot is with Biden. Hmm. You know, the biggest shifts are coming from whites without college degrees, those who make less than $50,000 a year, voters under 45, and women who live in small cities or in the suburbs, all, by the way, are key demographic groups that helped Biden win in 2020, the kinds of voters that he peeled away from Trump and who made some inroads with these groups in 2016. And this is happening likely for a few reasons. I mean, first, Democrats had better than expected midterms. Uh, secondly, Biden's State of the Union address had to give at least some of them more confidence in Biden's ability to carry out this message going forward. Uh, and this poll took place after his State of the Union address. Uh, third, these are Democrats and independents who lean Democratic. So they're already open to Biden's message. And this is likely part of the normal coalescing around a nominee yeah. as it becomes more and more apparent that Biden is going to run for re-election. Really interesting when you say whites without college degrees. That's a group of voters that Biden would argue he specifically is good at attracting to the yeah. Democratic Party compared to some other people. But what about Republicans? How are they looking? It's not as rosy a picture for Trump. With Republicans and independents who lean their direction, 68% have a favorable view of Trump and a quarter have a negative one. That doesn't seem too bad, but it's a net 27 points lower than Biden is with Democrats. It's the worst score for Trump among Republicans and Republican leaners since September of 2016. And it's worse than how potential Republican voters view Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. When you dig into these numbers, we get a pretty good idea of who potential Republican Trump and DeSantis primary voters are, and they're like mirror images of each other. You know, Trump does best with white evangelical Christians, whites without degrees, those who live in small towns or rural areas, and lower income voters. DeSantis, on the other hand, is best liked by college grads, those who make more than $50,000 a year, people who live in big cities or the suburbs, and Republican-leaning independents. So we see some pretty clear lanes here for them and could point to a protracted Republican primary if DeSantis does decide to get in. NPR's Domenico Montanaro, thanks so much. You're welcome. The family of Malcolm X says it plans to file a $100 million wrongful death suit against the New York Police Department, the FBI, and other government agencies. The family members say they believe officials conspired to kill the civil rights leader, then covered it up. Samantha Max of member station WNYC is on the line. She was with the family yesterday on the 58th anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X. Good morning, Samantha. Hi, Leela. So you were with the family. Can you give us the details of what they say they believe happened? So the family believes that government officials all the way up to the head of the FBI at the time actually wanted Malcolm X dead and played a role in his assassination. They also believe that officials concealed evidence in the investigation into his murder and allowed two men to be wrongfully convicted for the killing. So the family has brought in the attorney, Ben Crump. You might have heard his name because yeah. he's represented loved ones in several high-profile cases of people killed by police, including George Floyd. Crump filed paperwork yesterday alerting dozens of government officials and agencies that the family is getting ready to sue. And I should say that those agencies either couldn't be reached or declined to comment. As I mentioned, yesterday marked 58 years since Malcolm X was assassinated. So why now? Why the file this lawsuit all these years later? 
So in 2021, two men who were convicted of murdering Malcolm X and spent decades in prison were exonerated. That came after the Manhattan District Attorney's Office worked with the Innocence Project and other attorneys to review their convictions. And they found that the FBI and the NYPD had withheld evidence that could have cleared these men of wrongdoing. Mm. So a judge ended up throwing out the convictions and last fall, New York City agreed to pay them each $13 million. Where does the criminal case stand with those exonerations? So another man, uh, Mujahid Halim, had confessed to the killing at trial, and he's long maintained that the others were innocent. So he spent more than 40 years in prison and has been out on parole since 2010. Um, In an affidavit, he said that he and some other men had planned the killing because they thought that Malcolm X was a hypocrite who wasn't loyal to the leader of the Nation of Islam. But the family thinks it's bigger than that. They think it's part of a larger government conspiracy. Is this lawsuit a bid for accountability here? I mean, part of it is definitely just personal. They want money for the trauma that they've endured. Two of Malcolm X's daughters who just announced this lawsuit were actually at the Audubon Ballroom where when their father was shot during his speech. Yeah. The press conference yesterday was in that same room. But it's definitely about more than that. They also want answers. Mm -hmm. Historians, investigative journalists, attorneys, and even government officials have for years and years been raising questions about this case. But as the family's attorney said, much of it has just been speculation up to this point. So if you file a lawsuit, you can go through the discovery process. That means you can get all kinds of records and documents. And their attorneys would also have the opportunity to interview officials in the case, at least the ones who all these years later are still alive. And they say that would bring some transparency, not just for the family, but also for the public. So they want to know. That's WNYC's Samantha Max. Thanks for your reporting on this, Sam. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, reports of health concerns are mounting in Palestine, Ohio, more than two weeks after a train derailment spilled toxic chemicals. Today and tomorrow may be pretty messy. It'll start out with partly sunny skies this morning, but high winds quickly bring clouds in this afternoon and there's a chance of rain. Temperatures will be in the low 40s. Tonight, those fall to the low 30s and there's a good chance of rain and freezing rain. The showers likely continue tomorrow morning and it may turn into freezing rain in the afternoon. It'll also be windy and we won't make it out of the mid-30s. It's 39 degrees in Boston at 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Now in business news, a construction company based in Milford will help update a major landmark in Washington, D.C. Consigli Construction will lead the rehab work and expansion of the Lincoln Memorial on the National Mall. The $69 million project will create a museum underneath the memorial. It'll also make it more accessible. 
The project is expected to be finished by 2026. The Boston-based wireless internet company Starry has filed for bankruptcy. The company says it entered Chapter 11 yesterday in order to keep operating while cutting its debt. Starry has laid off more than half of its workforce, about 500 people, since last year. The charitable arm of Boston-based Fidelity says it distributed more than $11 billion in grants last year. That's a billion-dollar increase from the previous year and a record for Fidelity Charitable. It credits the boost to people wanting to help Ukrainians suffering amid the Russian invasion. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Clark, New England's Sub-Zero and Wolf showroom and test kitchen where you can cook on Wolf Appliances to make informed selections. More at ClarkLiving.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fulton. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Is East Palestine, Ohio, getting the help that it needs? Two weeks ago, of course, a train carrying toxic chemicals derailed near the Ohio-Pennsylvania border, and people have reported trouble ever since, which Reed Frazier is covering for the Allegheny Front. Good morning. Hello. Okay, so authorities say that uh, they're trying to make sure that communities feel like home again. But what does that mean in this case? Well, the head of the EPA says it means there's a shift now from phase one, responding to the emergency, to phase two, which is cleanup. And that comes with an order from the EPA to make sure the cleanup is done properly. Uh, EPA Administrator Michael Regan said the agency is ordering Norfolk Southern to clean up. The EPA will oversee it. Mm -hmm. The company will have to produce a work plan. The EPA will then have to approve it. Regan says the Norfolk Southern will simply have to clean up the mess it's created. If the company fails to complete any action ordered by EPA, the agency will immediately step in, conduct the work ourselves, and then force Norfolk Southern to pay triple in cost according to the powers granted by my agency. And Regan says this won't undo the suffering that the folks there have been going through, but at least uh, lets people know that uh, authorities have heard them and are taking action. Listen, I know you're traveling around the region there, and there's more than one town that's affected, even though East Palestine is what uh, is in the headlines, what we talk about. What is happening across the border in Pennsylvania? Yeah, well, as you probably know, this happened a few hundred yards from the border. Um, and folks on the other side have said that they feel a little bit left out of the uh, response. Um, but Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro uh, says that, a, that his state environmental agency is testing the air and that so far there have been no adverse results that they found um, and that they're, they've been conducting water tests and those results will be coming in soon and they'll continue to test. He did take some time uh, to blast Norfolk Southern and says, and sort of applauded the EPA's step to uh, enforce this order. So it won't be able to walk away from its responsibilities. It is my view, the Norfolk Southern wasn't gonna do this out of the goodness of their own heart. There's not a lot of goodness in there. They needed to be compelled to act. And that's what he says the EPA did in issuing this order. You know, we had Pete Buttigieg on the program yesterday. Of course, he's the Secretary of Transportation. He's pushing Norfolk Southern. This is in some ways a, 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 a political show of force, but Buttigieg is arguing that it is time for better and different rail regulation. Where's that going? Well, there's a mounting call uh, for Congress to act on this. Um, both Governor Shapiro of Pennsylvania and Ohio Governor Mike DeWine spoke about this. DeWine says train safety really needs to have a higher priority now. 
These trains are longer and longer and longer. They're carrying toxic material. And if something happens and there's a derailment, we have what we have in East Palestine today. No other community should have to go through this. The National Transportation Safety Board is investigating this. And congressional leaders say the results of that investigation will determine the future course on what regulations might look like. Reed, thanks so much for the update. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Reed Frazier is with The Allegheny Front, a radio program that covers environmental issues. This is NPR News. And Ohio Governor Mike DeWine will be on here and now today to talk more about the Ohio derailment. And Robin Young is here in studio to tell us what else is on the show. Hi there, Robin. Hi there. I can't wait to talk to him. You know, I know. The There's a lot. That he has. But yes, we, and we have a lot today, including that uh, I made a trip recently to Fort Myers to visit some of our friends down at WGCU, the public radio station there, and also FGCU, that's Florida Gulf Coast University. <laughs> and we went out with a paleoclimatologist, a scientist from FGCU. What is that, you may ask? I have no idea. This is someone, she studies prehistoric weather, prehistoric storms. And because of that, she is able to, for instance, go down into the sediment and drill down and see different storms whose surges have washed up way back to the 1800s. And this storm, Ian, in September that was so devastating, we're five months on, she finds the sediment from Ian, and it adds to their understanding of the fact that, yes, there's global warming, no question. But this is a hurricane-prone area. They've been having storms storms this big since the 1800s. Mm. So what do people do with that information? Uh, we have that great story, but also our Peter O'Dowd is out in the west at Stalton, at the Stalton Sea, and we know about the um, Colorado River mm-hmm. drying up. The Stalton Sea is also drying up, and as it does, this this lake gives off this these toxic fumes. Oh, so a lot of water issues uh, on the program today, and of course, that's because we have a big problem with our water. Yeah, I really appreciate his ongoing coverage on oh, that. Oh, sure. Thank you, Robin. Thank you. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, Andrea Campbell joins us for the first time since becoming the state's top lawyer. It's been a journey from Boston City Council to the Attorney General's office, and we'll find out more about her priorities and how she'll bring that Boston experience to her work as the people's lawyer. Andrea Campbell joins Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. We'll update jittery stock markets. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. First, extra fees for nearly everything are a central part of flying for most of us. I just booked a flight with an airline that charges a buck for a little water. But starting in March, United Airlines won't charge extra for passengers who want their under 12 kids to sit next to them. This comes as the Biden administration works on rules to rein in some of these fees. Marketplace's Kristen Schwab reports. 
In the past few decades, the average airfare has actually gone down by more than $180 if you adjust for inflation. But airfare doesn't technically include all of the fees for luggage, seat assignments, and priority boarding. Robert Mann, an airline industry analyst, says those extras started to pop up in the 90s at the same time as the web. Suddenly, airlines had an option. They could build their own websites, they could sell directly via those websites, and they could sell certain things that they previously could not sell. Unbundling is what the industry calls it. It started as a marketing method for low-cost carriers like Ryanair in Europe and Spirit Airlines in the U.S. The rest of the industry started following suit in 2008 when fuel prices broke records. Because the more weight a plane carries, the more fuel it needs. So airlines attempted to get people essentially to leave stuff at home. Their motivation and their lever to do that was to charge you $50 to charge a bag. And from that point, it was kind of open season on fees, at least at big airlines. Mann says today, U.S. carriers make around $30 billion a year in fees, and they prefer them to upping ticket prices because fees are not subject to federal taxes. Henry Hartfelt is a travel industry analyst at Atmosphere Research Group. So it's an accounting play. Also now a marketing play, because add-ons have become a way for airlines to get people to enroll in loyalty programs and credit cards. And it turns out most customers prefer fees. They feel like they get more value and have more choice. But Jay Sorensen, president of airline consulting firm IdeaWorks Company, says fees have become so common that some airlines are getting rid of a few to stand out. The distinction between low-cost carriers and global network airlines has become less defined. And I think the airline industry made a mistake by allowing it to get to this level. Sorensen thinks more airlines will start dropping fees that stress people out, like charging families for seat assignments. But he doubts those lucrative baggage add-ons are going anywhere soon. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. And there was a piece in Forbes at the end of last year about how to grab mistake fares for airline tickets in rare cases where the software pops out a weirdly low price. Now the online site The Points Guy has noticed United has put in some fine print saying they can reverse ticket charges when they're near zero, but that the airline would reimburse passengers for reasonable costs for those who had to change other plans when the cheapo airline ticket gets canceled. Markets started the year in optimistic mode, and then yesterday happened. The Dow wiped out its gains for the year. All major indexes fell between 2 and 2.5%. Two and Paradoxically, you can blame good news. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. We're in a good news is bad news environment. Indicators that the economy and the labor market are resilient fuel worries over how much more the Federal Reserve will have to raise interest rates to cool inflation. The more interest rates go up and the longer they stay up, the better the chance of a recession. And so yesterday, markets got another bout of unwelcome good news. S&P Global's Purchasing Managers Index, a bellwether of economic activity, showed an unexpected uptick for this month with a return to growth in the services sector. That suggests signs of economic slowdown last month may have been short-lived. And so investors sold stocks in anticipation of higher interest rates, which could either ding company earnings, slow the economy too much, make bonds more attractive, or all of the above. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. Let's do the up numbers here. 
Yeah, this morning stock index futures are hinting at a slightly higher opening in about half an hour. S&P futures are up two tenths percent. Nasdaq futures up three tenths percent. Dow futures up 47, about a tenth of a percent. The 10-year interest rate pretty steady at 3.94 percent. Starbucks is trying to persuade Italians that olive oil and coffee mix. They're swizzling it into foam in Italy, unlike the cappuccino or espresso. This doesn't seem to be a case of cultural appropriation by a multinational corporation, as olive oil coffee doesn't seem to have been an existing thing in Italy, in my experience. We'll see how this goes. The Oliato line could come to California later this year. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. Schwab offers a modern approach to wealth management with personalized financial planning to meet an investor's specific needs and the flexibility to adapt as those needs change with time. Learn more at schwab.com plan. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. Should tech platforms like YouTube and TikTok be immune from lawsuits if their algorithms promote harmful content? That's one of the questions the Supreme Court considered in oral arguments in a case involving Google, YouTube's parent company. Marketplace's Matt Levin has an update. Section 230 is the part of the 1996 Communications Decency Act that says you can't sue an Internet company for something someone else posted on their website. If the Supreme Court says Section 230 does not protect recommendation algorithms, you might see YouTube change one thing pretty quickly. Autoplay. Nick Siever is an anthropologist of technology at Tufts University. So the way that something like YouTube will play a video immediately following, and that's clearly more of an active push. It's not just the autoplay rabbit hole and its related ad revenue that's at stake. The Supreme Court ruling could impact everything from Yelp reviews to Microsoft Outlook spam folder. Tech companies say these algorithms are necessary to help users find the content they want. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. Today, the high court hears a second related case about whether an anti-terrorism law outweighs tech company immunity. And who among us does not need to brush up on some kind of basic economics? Well, one know-it-all just said, not me, but for the rest of us, consider signing up for our Marketplace Crash Course, a kind of Econ 101 in newsletter form. It's free, and you can learn at your own pace, marketplace.org slash crash course. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio. It's Marketplace Morning Report. APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. We'll have some sun this morning. It'll be in the low 40s. Then clouds, rain, and wind this afternoon. Tonight, rain and freezing rain likely. It'll be windy and in the low 30s. Rain tomorrow morning, possibly becoming freezing rain in the afternoon. It's 39 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. In my job, balance is really important. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at WBUR.org cars.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales Investments, dedicated to helping ease the mental health crisis through the Fuss Family Mental Health Initiative, aimed at tackling the mental health challenges facing young people in under-resourced communities by providing support for systems of outreach, prevention and therapeutic programming, and training for valued clinicians. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.